Well, I invite you again to turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Sometimes I, I read certain things from old writers, and, you're, and they're writing about the times that they are in. And you read them, and sometimes it's like they're reading a, a newspaper article from last week. You hear things of the moral decline in the society, the, the apostatizing from the faith. And you hear these things, and, you, and you're thinking in your mind, what, what's how did that happen 150 years ago? That's what's happening right now. The book of Psalm, Psalm 2 in particular, has that kind of feel for us. As we see in here, a people, the nations, casting aside, seeking or desiring to cast aside the cords of God, seeking to go their own way. We are living in that time right now. We are witnessing that at breakneck speed, to be honest with you, we are witnessing a world that's in rebellion against God, like never before. A world that's in absolute rebellion against God. Um, and the psalmist is, in one sense, helping us to see this as he writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. And terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage, homage to the Lord, to the, to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Last week, we were reminded that this is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm whose burden is set forth in order to present to us the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is also a coronation psalm used during the coronation of the kings of Israel. And yes, this is a coronation psalm, but it is a psalm that points way beyond David and the sons of David, to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now last week I began to consider these things with you under these four headings that, that were really presented to us in the text that was given to us. In verses 1 through 3, we saw the rebellion of the nations. In verses 4 through 6, we saw the response of the sovereign 
in verses seven through nine, the reign of the king and the refuge in the son in verses 10 through 12. Last week, we considered verses one through three, the rebellion of the nations. And as we considered the psalm, we saw the psalm, that the psalmist was describing for us a coup or rebellion that was taking place. And he began by asking a question. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Now, this is a question that was not for the purpose of, again, gathering information. It was a rhetoric question, but that was a question of astonishment. He was bewildered. As one writer put it, rather than seeking information, the psalmist expresses his outrage that the nations would have the audacity to rebel against God and his chosen king. We saw last week a description of the rebellion. As the psalmist paints for us a vivid picture of the rebellion, rebellion in verse 1, he calls it an uproar calls it an uproar. This is a picture here of a raging sea. It is painted here for us as a rabid mob seeking to cast off the restraints of a government. Now, this rebellion is not some organic uprising. Rather, it is a planned and protracted scheme. He says that they are devising a vain thing. They are devising it. He describes here the activity of the rebels. They are devising a vain thing. And they are putting their heads together down in verse 2 as the rulers take counsel together. In other words, it is nothing short of an insurrection. Treason of the highest order. It is a rebellion. Now, we saw last week the scope of the rebellion. He mentions the players who were a part of this rebellion. He says the nations in verse 1, the peoples in verse 1. He, down in verse 2, he says the kings are a part of the, the overthrow. The rulers in verse 10, he has the judges also a part of this. And so this is not just a, a coup by a, a select group of people. This is a, a galvanized universal coup by all of humanity. We saw in verse 2 the objects of the rebellion, that they took up arms against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, his Messiah. They have taken up arms against the Lord and his Messiah. And as I said last week, this is not some some regional skirmish. No, this is an all-out war. It says that they have taken their stand against God. They have set themselves in battle array against God. This is what the world system has done. They have set themselves in battle array against God. The psalmist then reminds us of the goal of the rebellion. The goal of the rebellion is found in verse 2 or in verse 3. He says, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a picture here of man's refusal to bow the knee to the sovereign Lord and to his law and his commandments. 
their goal is to tear away the fetters from, from themselves and cut the cords from God. And we said that last, we said last week that, the, that these rebels think that by cutting the cords of God's law from themselves that they will find freedom. In fact, they will enter into a new slavery that is way, way beyond what they would have ever imagined. One writer has said this, resolved they were to run riot as lawless, I love this word here, and aweless, lawless and aweless, and therefore they slander the sweet laws of Christ's kingdom as bonds and thick cords, which are signs of slavery. And we saw last week that the law of God is the law of liberty. Jesus says, if the Son will set you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. Now, in summation, we, we saw in these verses that this points to the greater picture of humanity's rebellion against God. All of humanity is galvanized in one accord to cast aside the bonds of Almighty God. A plot that we saw last week was doomed to fail from its inception as the psalmist describes the rage and the rebellion as a vain thing. He says, it is a vain thing. Now, why is it a vain thing? We began to answer that question last week. Why is this a vain thing? It's because of the opponent. Who are they seeking to cast the cords from, from the sovereign, from Adonai, we saw down in verse 4, from the Lord. We see in verse 4 it says here, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, Adonai scoffs at them. It's a vain thing because there's no way to cast off the cords of Adonai, the sovereign. We spoke last week of the puny efforts of these puny pugilists to overthrow the, the almighty God, the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. It's not going to happen, and yet they seek to do it. They rebel out of sheer madness to think that they can throw off and cast off the cords of of the omnipotent one. They cannot, and yet they seek to do it in their madness and their, their foolishness. It's a vain thing, and so God knows this, and so it says that he laughs at them. He scoffs at them. This is not the laughter of joy in, in their demise. It's the laughter of, 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 of what we, so, we spoke of last week, that God is in an impregnable force. They can't bother God. They can't thwart his plan or, 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 or stifle what he is trying to do. There's no way possible for them to do this. And so, so God laughs at them. We saw last week, I, I gave you a quote last week from an author said that the laughter arises from God's impregnable supremacy. He laughs at them. Now, the scoffing laughter we saw last week was not alone. 
The question may arise, is God silent about the rebellion? Has he turned a blind eye to the rebellion? And you say, no, absolutely not. God is holy and the rebellion has incensed God. And so he speaks to them, it says in verse 5, in his anger. He speaks to them in his anger. We said last week that when God is silent, it appears that the wicked are prospering. It is good to know that there is a then. Then, he says here, then he will speak to them in his anger. This reminds us that the wicked will, will indeed be punished. This is what is happening in the book of Revelation. We read through the book of Revelation recently. It brought comfort to those believers in chapter 6 to know that, that yeah, they had been martyred for the sake of Christ, but, but God was coming to their aid and bringing retribution to those who had, who had attacked them and had, a, a, had persecuted them, who had even killed them. It's a comfort to us. We see the wicked of, of our own time. We see it happening all around us. And it's, it doesn't bring us joy in one sense to, to know that they will be brought to their end in, in judgment. But at the same time, it brings comfort to the heart of the believer to know that God is for us and who can be against us. It would be like a child going out to play on the playground and this big bully comes along and starts pushing the child around and, and the child's father comes along, he sees the bullying taking place and he says nothing. No, what, was, what should the father do? Grab the bully, pull him aside, talk to him, deal with the bully, right? But he knows, and the child knows going forward, my father is in my corner. He's on my side. And it brought him, would bring him comfort. It's true for the believers, too. For believers, too. It brings us comfort to know that, that God is for us, and therefore, who can be against us? How do we know that, that this will bring, be brought about? Because of the definitive word of the sovereign. We saw this last week in verse 6, where he says, but, for as, but as for me, and here's how he's going to accomplish all of this, and here's his answer to the raging nations. Here's the answer from God. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He says, I have installed my king I've placed my king, I've done it, it has been accomplished in a sense. I have installed my king in, on, upon Zion. And this is an act that can't be thwarted or altered. And why? Why can it not be thwarted or altered? Because of what we see in verse 7, because it has been decreed. Now let's now consider the reign of the king, the reign of the king in verse seven. But as for me, it says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, in its immediate context, this declaration would have been from God to the sons of David during a coronation as a new king ascended the throne. But as we have said before, this, this is pointing to someone greater than David, greater than Solomon, greater than Rehoboam, greater than Uzziah, greater than all the kings that would proceed from the loins of David, greater than all the kings of the earth, it would be David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ that these things are pointing to. And so he says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. We know that this will not fail because God has decreed it. And whatsoever God decrees, it shall come to pass. Because it has been decreed by the omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign God. And all that he has decreed, it will come to pass as he has purposed it to come to pass. When he has purposed it and how he has purposed it to come to pass. And so he says here, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And here's the decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have begotten you. Now, what does the psalmist mean by these declarative statements here? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, as I said before, in its immediate context, this declaration would have been from God to the sons of David during a coronation or an enthronement of one of David's kings or sons to the throne of David. He says, you are my son. But again, this is pointing here to something greater than David, greater than David's sons. Now, we understand this from the, the New Testament he speaks here of you are my son. If this is pointing to Christ ultimately, then we know that this is speaking of that Trinitarian relationship between the father and the son. This is God, the father and God, the son. And that's that Trinitarian relationship that he is speaking of here when he says that you are my son. But what does he mean when he says that today I have begotten you now? There are several interpretations of this as to what he means here when he says, today I have begotten you. Now, one interpretation is that he is speaking here of the eternal, uh, what we call the eternal begottenness of Jesus. That Jesus was eternally begotten of the Father. Now, what do we mean by that he was eternally begotten? What we mean by this is that, 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 that God the Father begot the son, although Jesus never had a beginning, he was always eternally begotten of the father. That he was begotten from all of eternity. That there was not a time ever in time and when, when there was God that, God, that Jesus Christ was not eternally begotten. We call it 
and called by theologians as the eternal generation of Jesus Christ. He was the eternal begotten son of God. In, in, our, um, in the London Baptist Confession concerning of God and the Holy Trinity, it says this, in this divine and infinite being, there are three substance, subsistences. The Father, the Word, or Son, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit. Of one sub- substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is none, is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. Pre- proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. In other words, that the Father is, doesn't proceed, he's not begotten. The Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And all this happens eternally, so there's no time in history or time in space when that was not true of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was always this Trinitarian existence, this love and devotion to one another, honor and glory given to one another from all of eternity. They had never, ever not existed in this way. And so we speak of this as being the, as Jesus being the eternally begotten Son of God. Now, some say that this is not just speaking of the eternal generation or eternal begottenness of, of Jesus, but rather his incarnation. And so they would say that this is a reference to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And in, in some senses, we do speak of Jesus as the only begotten son in, in regards to his incarnation. And he's often referred to as the only begotten in regards to his incarnation as his taking on humanity. However, I do believe that this is refer, referring to something else. I believe he's referring to the resurrection of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. Let me tell you why. Let me show you why. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13 quickly. We're going to look at verses 30 through 34. And we see this, this, this portion from Psalm 2 quoted here in the book of Acts. Chapter 30, verse 30, chapter 13, verse 30. Chapter 13. He says, but God raised him from the dead. This is speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. The very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled the promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
And so he's here talking about in the context here, the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he quotes here Psalm 2 to highlight and illustrate, okay, why is this referring, why is this, why is he, 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 he connects this to Psalm 2 here in verse, in chapter 8, uh, 33. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll see it again. Now this time a reference to not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but rather to the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, it says, And he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Listen to this. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is his exaltation. Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So again, here's another reference to this text here, very, a direct quotation from Psalm 2. Now, this time again in the context of Christ's exaltation. So we have it now appearing in two instances of Jesus' redemptive work. First of all, in his, in his uh, resurrection, and now here in his exaltation. And he's calling him here in both instances, the begotten son of God, the begotten son of God. Now, we see this in other places in the scripture. We see somewhat of a parallel with regard to the resurrection of Jesus in Romans chapter one, verse four. When it speaks here of the resurrection, it says Jesus, who was declared in verse four, the Son of God with power. How was he declared the Son of God with power? By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection declared Jesus to be the Son of God. It did not make him the Son of God. He was the Son of God, but it declared it was the amen that Jesus was the Son of God. That this one, the work that he had done, the redemptive work of Christ, Messiah, had come, he had accomplished salvation, and now he was now resurrected and raised from the dead as a testimony, as a declaration that, yes, I have accepted the offering from God, from, from, uh, God has accepted the offering, and now Jesus Christ's work was finished. He would have been accomplished. He had declared was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, now does this mean that, that in his incarnation that he's not the Son of God? No, is, is it meaning that somehow at his, in his incarnation he was not sovereign, that he just became sovereign at some point, a ruler, a king? No, it's not what we're saying there. I'm not saying that at all. Jesus was king. He was king when he was born in the manger. He was king of the universe. He, he ruled over all of creation when he was 
a 12-year-old boy uh, uh, speaking with the, the religious leaders in the, in the temple. He was king and lord of all in his incarnation. At all times, he was king and ruler of all of creation. So there was never a time when he was not king Jesus in that sense. But in a unique way, at the resurrection and at the ascension of Christ, he is the begotten son of God. Now think about this now. He's now resurrected. He's now exalted. And he's what now? He's seated at the what? At the right hand of the father. He's now what? He's in his corn. He's being coronated in a sense. He's been enthroned in a sense not because he wasn't king and kings, but it's a, it's a reality now that now Jesus is now seated at the th- right hand of the Father. He's enthroned on high now. This is why we speak of these things in Philippians 2. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being a, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Was Jesus' name not above every name before that? It was. It was. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would what? Will bow. And, and of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is why when we read in. Matthew 28, it only makes sense that all power has been given to Jesus. Jesus is reigning now. No matter what you believe eschatologically, whether you believe in some future reign of Christ for a thousand years upon the earth, we have to confess that the Bible teaches us that Jesus is reigning right now. He's in control right now. He has not abdicated his throne. He did not abdicate his throne at the incarnation. We, we speak of things of, that he laid his glory beside. Jesus never divested, divested himself of any of his glory of majesty and power and sovereignty. He was the sovereign king of kings and ruler of all the nations for all of eternity. He's always been king. He always will be king. And he is now today reigning and ruling over all of creation. says, look at verse 8 now. We look at the scope now of his ruling. Look at the scope of his ruling now, his, his reign. He says, ask of me. This, this is, a, this is a, from the Father. He says, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Look at the scope of his kingdom. He's not like David's sons. He didn't just just inherit some strip of land in Palestine that they're fighting over right now. No, what he did was he inherited the nations. He says, he says, he says, ask of me and I will give you what? A little strip of land in Palestine that they're warring over right now. No, he says, I will give you the nations. All the nations. Will be yours. This reminds us again that. This could not have been fulfilled through any of Solomon's, any of David's sons. Solomon couldn't do this. As far as Solomon expanded the kingdom of of Israel during that time, nothing compares to what he's talking about here. 
Nothing compares to that. He's given him the nations as his inheritance. He's given him all authority and all power has been given to him. That he's is what we read in Philippians, Philippians 2. Now, in Matthew 28, when we, we call it the Great Commission, hear these words ringing again. He says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to him. What is he going to do with that? He says, now go, therefore, you, you go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus is and possesses all authority. It's been given to him in heaven and on earth. And now he's using that authority to bring in the nations, his inheritance. That's what he's doing here. He's bringing in all that the father has given to him. That gift that was promised to the son. He's now bringing him in through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider this, that that plan will not fail. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All that God gives to the Son, all the nations, all those of the nations that he gives to him, they will come to him. It's a plan that will not be thwarted. In John, verse, John 6, 39, it says, This is the will of him who sent me, that, all, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. He says, I'll lose nothing. He will bring in his elect. He's sovereign. He's Lord of lords. He's king. He's the king of kings. He will bring in his elect from the four corners of the earth. All the nations will bow down and worship him. Now down in verse 8, down in verse 9, we see the forcefulness of this rule. See the forcefulness of this rule. He says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is one pastor says, this is, this is not as Charles Wesley uh, children's hymn Speaks of, this is not Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is not Jesus in the manger. This is not Jesus, the healer. This is Jesus as a warrior coming with his sword, bringing retribution. This is Jesus that's found in Revelation 19. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will... Ruled them with a rod of iron, and he treads 
the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's to Jesus in Revelation 19, 16. It says, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so, this is not the gentle Jesus that the world portrays him to be. It says, some of you have heard Vody Balkum said, this is not Jesus, the shampoo model that the world gives to us. This is Jesus coming with the sword in his hand, yielding it, bringing retribution to those who do not love Christ, who do not obey the gospel. And you say, well, well, that's harsh. Who wants to have anything to do with that, Jesus? Well, he offers a solution in verses 9 through 12. We see here the refuge in the Son. Listen to this. The same one to whom we must flee from because of the wrath that is to come is the same one that we must run to for safety and refuge. That if we are to, we are to, to come on God's terms, we must flee to the one to whom flee to the one who has wrath against us. So the psalmist now turns in verse 9 through 12 from being a mere bystander reporting on this, the scene to a preacher of righteousness calling for repentance. He tells us here of the way of peace. He tells us here of the terms of peace. Notice down in verses 10 through 11, he says here, notice the imperatives we find there in verses 10 through 11. He says, now therefore, O kings, here's, here he goes, show discernment. Show discernment. In verse uh, 10 also, he says, take warning, O judges of the earth. In verse 11, he says, worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice in verse 11 with trembling. And then he says down in verse 12. Do homage to the son or some of your translations may say kiss the son. It's a picture here of coming to God in peace. In absolute and utter surrender of your own ways. He's calling here for. You to surrender to lay down your arms. Come to the Son and to kiss the Son, to, to revere Him, to lay down your arms that you have raised your weapons of warfare against God. And He calls for Him here to lay them down. He says, Kiss the Son in verse 12. Kiss the Son, do homage to the Son. These are God's terms of peace. And this is important for us because when we come to Christ, we must come to God on God's terms. God is the one who sets the terms of peace. We don't do that. I was reading this past week in a, in a U.S. history book, and I was reminded of, of um, 
Ulysses S. Grant's nickname. It was called, some of you might know this, Unconditional Surrender. And he's saying here that, you, in other words, he says, if you are to surrender, you must come on my terms, the terms that we have set. And this is what God is saying here to us. We have to come to, to God on God's terms. We don't set the terms of peace. God sets the terms of peace. We are not the ones who are in control who say, well, I will come to God by and I'll do some good works. I'll go to church and I'll start uh, serving at the soup kitchen and I'll begin to be kinder to my wife or my children. God says those are not the terms of peace. God sets the terms of peace. We don't do this. Now, notice the consequences of not heeding. He says, do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. As you recall, last week we said that in all probability, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were one single literary unit at one point. If you look at the end of Psalm 1, it says these words, it uses that same phraseology here. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He says, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here he's saying the same thing. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. He's saying the same thing in essence. He says, for his wrath is kindled. Look at the blessing here. Of coming to him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. All who come to him and take refuge in him. Now, just a couple of points of application. While I would encourage political involvement in regards to the current moral decay of our society. Humanity's answer is not political activism. God's answer to man's rebellion is to surrender to Christ and to worship the Lord. Listen, government can't save us. Our congressmen, although they may be reforming in their ways, perhaps not, they cannot save us. Okay. They do not provide for us the answers that a dying and sick world needs. The world needs Christ. The world needs Christ. Secondly, coming to Christ is not a take it or leave it option. We sometimes speak of the offer of the gospel. And the way we speak about the offer of the gospel, we almost speak about it in terms of, well, if you want it, you can take it. If you don't want it, you don't have to take it. The Bible never speaks in those terms with regard to the gospel. The Bible always speaks in terms of that God is commanding men to come to him. Amen. It is a command from God. It is a call 
to obey the gospel. That's why we, that, that language is used in the word of God. We are to obey the gospel. You're to come as a command then. In Acts chapter 17, it says the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now. Some of your translations, I'm going to read the ESV here. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's he appointed? Jesus Christ. He will judge the world through Christ. Now, coming to Christ is not something that when we talk to people, it's not just something we can just say, well, I, I like... I like apples. You like bananas. Take it or leave it. No. There are consequences for not coming to Christ. We've read of those consequences. He said in, in Revelation 19, it's the fierce wrath of God, almighty God. He calls them to drink down the cup of wrath down to its dregs. That's what he did to Christ. See, that's the thing. He's already done that to Christ. We exhort men and, and encourage them. Flee to Christ. If you're here this morning or this, now this afternoon just about, you're not in Christ. Young people, even adults, if you have not come to Christ, I exhort you, as the Apostle Paul, that as he exhorted those in Athens, that you obey the command of Christ and you repent of your sin. You repent and flee to Christ. He's proclaiming to all men, all mankind, that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Why should we repent? Because it says here that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, through the righteous one, the one who was without sin and flaw, the perfect son of God, who was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He will judge the world through that man. And our response should be surrender to Christ. Lay down your arms. Quit trying to come to Jesus on your own terms. He's given you terms of peace. Come to Jesus on his terms. What are Jesus's terms? Faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. Those are the terms of peace. You must come to Christ. Believing. That he is, and he is a rewarder of those who, who diligently seek him. You must believe that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to the Father but through him. You must lay hold of this Christ who says that, that, that there is no other name given in heaven, under heaven by which men might be saved. That the only way that men can be saved is through the work of Christ Jesus. That it's not through our own righteousness. 
It's not through our own political activism, whether we're conservative or, or democratic or, or liberal. No, it's through the work of Christ and through the work of Christ alone that we are rescued. Those are Christ's terms. Those are Christ's terms that he has given to us. And we rejoice that in those terms there is peace with God forevermore. Amen? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word this morning. I pray, God, that you'd be pleased to use uh, this time in our hearts and to cause us to see uh, where we have veered from your gospel, or even in the midst of all that is taking place around us, Lord. I pray that we would see that, or the answer to these things is not the pursuit of political activism or whatever that may look like, Lord. I pray that instead we would see that the answer is the gospel, the answer is Christ. So I pray for those in here who would have not laid hold of Christ, that they would, that they would lay hold of Christ. Pray for those who have sought to have a righteousness of their own, derived from the law, who've tried to keep the law, and yet find themselves failing. I pray that the law would be a schoolmaster to them, and cause them to run to Christ. I pray that at every turn, you would frustrate them. That you would not give them a relief, Lord, but that they would flee to Christ. They would see that Christ is their only answer. I pray, God, that you would burden them with the weight of their sin. But even as we read earlier today, Lord, I pray that they would even see that even in those Beatitudes, Lord, that they fall short of your glory, that they need a Savior. So, Lord, I pray and I plead with you, have mercy on those who do not have mercy right now. Open their eyes. Grant them the gifts of faith and repentance. May they lay hold of Christ and all of his glory and and majesty and beauty. As we pray in the name of our blessed Savior and for his sake, amen.